Nice to meet you. My name is Isdar Jong Harada. I'm a French-Japanese designer and environmentalist, educator, entrepreneur. I've been based in Hong Kong for the last eight years. Right now, I spend a good chunk of my time to teach design and ocean science and research at the University of Hong Kong in the Department of Architecture and at the Tron Institute of Marine Science. So that's my main title or role. Spend most of my hours doing. I'm also running Mekabe, which is the, the biggest privately owned mech space in the region. And I also have a ocean robotics company startup called Scoutbots. And the two active projects are coral reef mapping robot technology and floating solar hydrogen and the oyster hatching. Sorry. So it's diverse, like some is on education, the other one is more entrepreneurial, the other one is more like community building. Uh, oh, yes. And I'm also doing a PhD as well in France remotely at the CNAM. Uh, the CNAM, Conservatoire National des Arts et Métiers de Paris. So that, these are the different main activities that I have. Hi, and welcome to Hold the Space, a podcast about the intersection between creative practice and teaching. Each episode features a conversation between me, Ollie Palmer, and another creative practitioner who also teaches. This episode features an old friend of mine, Cesar Young Harada. I met Cesar nearly 15 years ago when he was a student at the Royal College of Art. I first saw his project, Open Sailing, at the Work in Progress show, where the public is invited to walk around the college and see projects that students are working on. Still slightly rough around the edges, not quite finished, but often in their most intriguing and raw state. Cesar's work stood out to me. It was a big, floating installation, hovering high up in a double-height space, a sea station made of numerous modules that were all interconnected, each with different functions. But the captions made it clear that this was a model that would someday be prototyped at real scale for testing. Besides the intriguing nature of this initial design, my interest in the project was piqued by his business card, which invited anybody who was interested to get involved. So I did. I contacted Cesar, and I joined his team, and we worked together, alongside a disparate group of people located all around the world, on developing this weird and wonderful project. The big goal being to develop the first International Ocean Station, like the International Space Station, but in the water. Together with other team members, we spent a month living in France, learning ocean survival skills, visiting all sorts of maritime locations, building models, meeting people who offered so much assistance. We also ran a workshop in Barcelona that we mentioned briefly in this conversation, where the public came and dreamed of different ways of living at sea. The whole thing was a great, weird, chaotic adventure, all spearheaded and held together by Cesar a verifiable polymath with interests and skills in so many different areas. The experience of being involved in that project truly changed my life, and honestly helped shape my career trajectory. I learned so much from it, and I don't think I'd be doing what I do, having not met Cesar. But it wasn't just me or our team who was interested in this project. It got picked up by numerous media outlets. It won the Ars Electronica Vostalpine Next Idea grant, Cesar became a TED Fellow, he went on to work for Southampton University, then MIT, and has since worked with many, many different people and places globally. As he mentioned in the introduction, there are quite a few feathers to his bow, and actually finding a time to speak was nearly impossible. If you look at his website, you can see his schedule, his projects, his talks, and more. 
but it gives a hint at just how hardworking and how busy he always is, and how he's always just in a different country at a different time. In this conversation, we discuss what César does and why he does it, his teaching philosophy, his approach to people, and how both of these things were influenced by his early experiences being completely disregarded by the French education system. We also discuss his work in communities affected by big events, like the BP oil spill, and working with refugees in Burma. We discuss managing teams, the nuances of teaching courses, and at the end, Cesar concludes with some lovely advice that I've been thinking about a lot since we recorded this interview, so please do listen to the end. Note that at the time this conversation was recorded, that was March 2022, Cesar was teaching in Hong Kong. Since we spoke for this interview, He's moved to the Singapore Institute of Technology, where he's now Associate Professor in the Business Communication and Design Cluster. One last thing before we start. I just want to apologise for the audio quality. I'm really sorry. At the last minute, we had issues with both of our microphones. We were both using brand new mics to do this interview, and our internet connection was really unstable. And as a result, you can hear glitchiness and sound peaking occasionally. I've tried to patch it up where possible, but there are tiny bits where it's still audible. So apologies if you're an audiophile and that kind of thing bothers you. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Cesar Young Harrider. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's such a pleasure to talk to you again. I can't believe it's been years since we last talked, several lifetimes ago. It feels. Yeah, yes. For the sakes of full disclosure, Cesar is a really good friend and I'm really so excited to have him talking to me today. You described that you do about a million different things. Does mm-hmm. your description of what you do change according to who you're talking to? And if so, how does that happen? I have a lot of admiration for the people who are able to be vegans and they are able to be adaptive and they can assume many roles depending on who they're talking to. But I'm not really able to do that. Not that I think it's being duplicitous or malicious, but I just want to treat everybody in the same way. And so instead of having different standards, I'm trying to bring the people that are supposed to be like what some people would assume as the lowest standard. I want to treat them the same way as the people that are at the top, if you will. And then the people that are at the top, I'm intentionally not trying to make an effort to treat them in any special way because I'm just trying to be respectful to everybody and truthful and direct with people. I just don't waste their time or my time or like respect to anybody or have excessive respect to anybody who doesn't deserve it either, if you will. Having seen you operate firsthand with like directors of galleries and with everybody else who has come into the project from all sorts of places, that's really clear. There's no double standards in that respect and no deference to something that shouldn't merit it. I feel that the people as well who are used to being treated in a special way, uh, when you treat them not in a special way, then they pay much more attention to you as well because you treat them as equal. And so if you treat people as equal, they tend to, to hear you more. Yeah, that's just my approach. What led you into the type of design practice and this inclusive way of working that you have now. I know there'll be many influences, but how would you summarize that? I mean, there are definitely a lot of influences about the participatory piece and the treating people in the same way. It would stem from the same base. 
So what's the common basis, my desire to, I really have a passion for the environment. That is for sure. That's my denominator of all the activities that I have. I'm always interested in like environmental impact. Mm. And based on that, the environment is the context in which all the human activities are, are taking place. I have a very deep and emotional relationship to the environment. I think that comes from my father's side of the family, where they are animists. So my father is Japanese, but not the Zen Japanese, more the, the Shinto Japanese, which is animist. So they would believe that nature is God, basically. The mountains are God, the rocks are God, the ocean is God, and the wind, the fire, rain. There's a few axioms in the religion, which is that everything is alive. So stone is alive, a tree is alive, of course, a fish is alive. So if you cut a tree, if you break a stone, if you eat a fish, you have to acknowledge and respect when you consume or when you interact with it in any way. And uh, there's another axiom also that every, everything is equal. So the life of a tree, the life of a plant, the life of a human, all should be treated with respect. And so if you have this empathy, then it's natural to treat everybody in the same way because you already have developed whether they are living or dead things because there's no dead things in Shinto belief. So I would say that the way that I treat materials, tools, people, nature has always this constant consideration, being considerate with things around you and moving with care. So I think basis is the things that, that I do. I don't know if, if I answer your question though. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's nice that you mentioned your father. I remember when we first met, one of the first things you showed me was the book that you had made about mm -hmm. his sculpture. And it's really clear that there's a huge amount of respect that you have for the work that he does. But also it seems very different from what you do, but I can see the origin now that you've explained this idea of animals. And it's something that I'm trying to pass on to, to my kid as well. I don't know what he's going to make out of this information. Like everybody reacts differently to this kind of input. But as a designer, I could see my environment and operate as designer, maybe in a different way from other designers. Not, not every designer, of course, everybody's unique. Yeah. So with that in my mind, what other people are seeing to influence the creative practice to get you to the stage where you are teaching in Hong Kong, where you have such an enthusiasm for the works that you do and the teaching that you do, but everything is so bundled up together. Is there anybody whose work you came across or any people who've really influenced that way of accepting that everything fits into the same place? I would say the energy and the impetus, so beyond this almost faith or religious belief, is more in the environmental activism community. Before being a designer, I was a, an environmental activist, very active in, in Europe. My older brother was the head of the Green Party youth group in Paris, and he also had a very huge influence on me. Uh, but not only him, but the sort of community that ended up growing in. And I felt at some point maybe people that had the deepest influence on me were environmental activists, not really like anybody that I could name in particular, but the movement, if you will. I felt at some point doing direct action of activism, what XR, the um, Extension Rebellion people are doing in the UK. You know, it is a new brand, but people have been doing this kind of like radical environmental activism for forever. You know, in many countries, it's even much more radical. In countries like Brazil, environmental activists get killed like every week. These are my roots. The rage against the destruction of the environment. And then little by little, I needed to find my place in society as a contributor, not somebody who is against the description of the environment, but somebody who's contributing to actually do something positive. 
And so little by little through the practice of design, I realized, okay, first I was as an artist, I was like, I can do some art and raise awareness, for example. But I felt that raising awareness was quite short-lived oftentimes. Okay, you, you attract people's attention and you change their opinion and that's great, but it doesn't necessarily change their behavior. So it doesn't change their practice, doesn't change the way they live, what they consume, etc. And so I felt like design was a very, very powerful way to engage with people. And a little by little, like right after graduating from the RCA, my first job was in civil engineering. So I worked in, in Southampton University in a civil engineering lab on ocean wave energy conversion. And then later I worked at MIT in robotics and material science. And more and more, my work has become more and more technical, a little bit similar to you. After you, you worked with open setting, I started reading a bit of your PhD. You really went deeper into coding and scripting. And so I did the same, like went, went more and more and more technical engineering and ended up starting a robotics company. And so now I've traveled across the gamut from art to science, and I'm very happily navigating that sort of horizontal, if you will. And then to implement this at a higher level on the vertical, then I've been going into like community building through maker space and entrepreneurship, like how to turn those ideas into like product and distribution, marketing, and sales and the economics of it. And I feel like I'm very much a generalist with a passion in the ocean and an expertise in design and a bit of knowledge in a lot of other disciplines. Always with the with the common interest in environmental stuff, whatever it is. Yeah. The next question I wanted to ask was about who the ideal audience member for part of your work is, but I think right. that's really hard to define because you have people who, like myself, work with you for a period of time and become inspired by the type of project that you're working on, and then it has a changing point in the trajectory of their lives. I saw that you've done loads of work with kids, and so to yes. channel that enthusiasm that they have and the, the childish curiosity that normally just gets beaten out of us in whatever way. But then you also have this whole ethos that you were describing earlier of treating everybody on the same level. How would you say the best way for people to engage with the type of work you do is? What would be the ultimate accolade if you saw somebody really enjoy what you're doing and like it? I think the way that you've you have experience working with me. I think that's the strongest way to experience it because we go through everything together. For example, I would say that the people that I've been working with that have been like most transformed is, for example, the people that I worked with, for example, on the BP oil spill. There are people that I've worked with like on the ground, like cleaning up the oil and working with the uh, community where the disaster struck and those communities are completely destroyed. And we spend months trying to document uh, how they're doing, trying to help them build evidence to take up the courts and to force BP to clean up the acts. And then transitioning to transform that high anxiety, deep-seated hatred of the people who are destroying the environment and trying to think like, how can we use that to do something positive? And then developing technologies like scientific work and then making breakthrough and then turning those into community projects that become then companies. Uh, and then this company grow and then the company is a whole adventure in itself. It goes up and down and you have this strong mission, but then you have to struggle with so many administrative and financial and legal and personal stuff like politics and ego, like all this gets in the way. Like the people that I work with, I think, are the most transformed. The caricature of the artist is that the artist is by himself, right, or by herself. And they are this recluse that has this kind of like inspiration and creating art. And so their medium is, I don't know, painting or poetry or music. And there's a very small nexus uh, core of people that experience it. But when you're doing like social work, it's the other people that become your sort of 
instrument of expression, not in the same instrument in the sense of instrumentalizing or utilizing people, but the collaborator become your terrain, like the relationship become the work itself. Yeah, so I think the more people are involved with the work, whether they are like direct collaborators or they are like extended community members or they are consumer of the product that, that we are building in and, and utilizing, or they are people who are looking at, looking at the product being used and being inspired by it, or they are like the students learning from being developed through participating, or the administrator that realized that it's okay not to know what's going to be the outcome of a class, or the community chief that felt reluctant to let their young being part of an experiment, but realizing that not only it brings value to the village, but it transforms these youth. Like all these experiments for me are incredibly gratifying because the people who participate transform because they're not just consumer. They're always co-creators at all these levels. Yeah. And I have to say, having been one of the co-creators <laughs> in invited into that thing, I can see the way that the, the goal is never just the thing that you have in your hand. But the goal is to build something that keeps building it in the future. And that seems to me is a common thread with all of the works that you do, that it's not just making an art exhibit that's going to go in and change a couple of minds, but building a community that will continue trying to change minds and continue fighting against this or fighting for that. That's right. Exactly. Maybe if you were asking me just previously, like if there was somebody who had this very strong influence, I would say it's recently I had to, to write some, <laughs> some letters to reapply to the job I have currently because I'm in academia and there's a lot of this kind of like crazy mechanism where you have to apply for your own job to, to be renewed. Uh, but I had to reflect and I was thinking about this conversation I had, I think it was in 2008, yeah, 2008. I was in the middle of my master's at the Royal College of Art, but I started teaching already master's at École Nationale Supérieure d'Architecture de Versailles. So before doing my master's, actually, I was myself a lecturer in master's. So I was in my first year of teaching. And uh, do you remember, we went to, to this workshop at the CCCB. Yeah. And uh, there was one moment where I took a step out uh, and you guys were like going around Barcelona and I was going to meet my, my pen pal because I had a Spanish pen pal. And uh, the father of my pen pal was actually the director of the School of Fine Arts, uh, Escuela Masana. And, uh, and I went to meet him and I had a coffee with him and I felt inadequate because I could feel he is such an extraordinary teacher. I could feel from the respect that his students had for him. And, and I asked him a very blunt question because I felt that I was a bad teacher. So I asked him, what is the difference between a young, bad teacher and a good, old teacher? And he took, uh, it was never, it never took so long to, to think, but he took like a good 10, 20 seconds where he looked in his coffee, took the time to think about his answer. And then he told me the difference is that a bad young teacher is trying to convey his conviction and his passion. And a good old teacher is trying to develop the student's conviction and passion. In other words, a young teacher, actually, we often feel a bit insecure and we feel that we have to, to transmit our ideas as if those ideas were the most important, that we have something to impart. Whereas the old teacher, in his wisdom, he knows that the young people are right and they know what is right for them. And they have a different vision from society and you need to let them develop their own views. You don't want to have 30 people with a similar mindset uh, like you do. You want to support them to become better than you. And so it's vain in the negative sense, vain in the ego sense, uh, to try to convince people of your own opinion 
in your own experience because those opinions are irrelevant. They're not relevant to, to them. At best, you can have the advantage of having some experience and maybe uh, some insight in the mechanism. But the goal is not to exist. The goal is to really get the young people to become themselves and be the energy that the world needs tomorrow, not an extension of, of you. So for me, this simple answer was really transformative and completely changed my teaching. And in recent years as well, I'm in Hong Kong. And it's not one particular conversation, but I'm in a society that is demoralizing a very high rate. Hong Kong has been an occupied territory by the British, by the Japanese, and now it's been taken over by the mainland government. And it's a place where people don't feel that they, they own themselves. They always feel that they live on a borrowed time. They feel continuously yeah. colonized. And so they always kept a place of safety in their own identity, recluse from the occupier's entity. But unfortunately, it is really struggling right now. And when I arrived in 2013, it was a very liberal place. In 2014, it was the umbrella revolution. Already everything changed. And in 2018, the national security law completely changed the whole feel of the city. And young people felt that their life was being robbed of them. I guess like some people in the UK maybe felt like that when Brexit happened. They felt like a part of their potential for their life and their ability to travel and the ability to work in Europe was being stolen from them. But still, it's a big territory. UK is big territory and it's a good passport. But when you're a Hong Konger and it's such a small island, you feel like you have nowhere to go. And so I have to deal with this psyche of the young people and what is happening to them. They live on the fourth line between the East and the West. And they've lost their sense of identity. So as a teacher, not only I have to help them to develop their, their the impetus and the motivation and the passion, but here I also have to help them define their own identity and help them to struggle with the sense of loss of themselves, of their own future. And it's, a, it's been a huge challenge, to be honest. And most of the time it's failing, to be also very honest. Like most young people are not able to salvage this sort of hope. And a lot of them live in a fantasy world. They're not able to see the reality. They, they live in a constant state of, of lie and uncertainty, and they're just looking for safety. So as a teacher, I've been growing up a lot. And I feel that my work as a teacher has also very heavily influenced the, the role that I think I have as a designer and an entrepreneur. Yeah, so it's funny you say that about the difference between the types of teaching and the impact that that then has later on. The title of this podcast is Hold the Space. And that's trying to work in two senses the first is the, as the teacher i think i definitely was <laughs> i definitely was the first type of teacher that, that you were describing earlier of like trying to prove everything through the teaching that you're doing and not leaving yeah. enough space for students to discover things on their own and yeah. it's been a long process to shift towards i hope now that i'm responsive to what people want to do yeah. and supportive of that rather than dictatorial in the way that I go mm -hmm. about things. And I think mm -hmm. that's the best that we can aspire to be as teachers, just hold the space so that they can find it. But exactly. equally, there's this tension between the various administrative burdens or the societal burdens that you have of being in a place where times are shifting and this sort of thing, and the ability to actually carry out creative practice and the extent to which you yourself have to embody that conflict between obligations to do something and obligations to do something else and also keeping the passion alive for the thing that you want to do. So it's like the holding the space in two senses. 
There's a, there's a very strange expectation. I don't know in, in your academic environment, but in, in the university where I'm teaching, University of Hong Kong, an architecture department, there's definitely an expectation that you're going to be a world-famous architect and, and like a highly published academic and a full-time teacher, catering to both like the very technical practice of architecture and all related fields and the very highly intellectual like theory of architecture and history and as well spending the time to invest in developing yourself with all the newest technology in VR and IoT and blockchain and working with like high density environment as well, changing rural environment. This is the expectation that you have to, to be doing like five or six different jobs at the same time. And I think it's a very toxic environment if you, not only on top of that, you apply a lot of foreign academic model as the template. Not on, only you're trying to do like six jobs, but you're trying to do that in a cultural model that is not local because we are an international university. So we are based in Hong Kong, but we also have to compete to be the best ranked university in Asia. And But we also are trying to comply and while doing this with all the American standards because the leadership is Western. It's an incredibly high expectation environment. Yeah. I, think, I think most of my colleagues and myself, even if we're not successful in, on all these fronts, because it's impossible to be successful in all these fronts. Like, it's, it's almost inhumane to imagine that you could be successful in all these fronts. You have to still pretend that you're successful in all these fronts. So it's a lot of game of appearing to be successful rather than like doing substantial work. And I don't think it's healthy. So personally, I feel that it's more, for me, a matter of working on it by chunks, if you will. So I feel like... Okay, now I've spent three years as a senior lecturer where I teach a lot. Like I've been teaching a lot. I have like hundreds of students every semester that I have to look after. It's a huge amount of work. But now I hope that my next phase, it can be a little less about teaching. If I can get to tenure track, then I can be a little bit more about research. But there's always a risk, right? Depending on where you are and in which stage, that instead of shifting, it just adds. It's just on top. And so... I feel that this is what's happening to a lot of my peers. And I can see that there's also this sort of dysfunctional expectation that you that everybody's going to get burned out at some point and then that you are going to have like sabbatical because they still need you. So, yeah, I, I don't say this is specific to my university. I think that as an industry, it's evolving very slowly, but it's, yeah, it's not definitely is not very healthy as an industry. Yeah, it's, I think it's a really tough thing within the context of academia to keep in mind your own success criteria because yeah. you're judging yourself according to what the university wants, what your peers are doing, which conferences everybody's published at, all these other external forces, which in the moment they become, it reminds me of the stereotype of the 1950s American suburban partners like keeping up to date with the joneses next door having the slightly larger car because their, their neighbors have a larger car and so on and losing sight of what actually makes them happy <laughs> and yeah. it's yeah i don't know it seems to me that you're able to keep in mind what your own success criteria are with oh, yeah. the work I mean, that you're doing and that yes. how do you do that I think I, I will, uh, I'll be forever grateful that uh, the French education system failed me in a way. <laughs> so another way of saying that I failed the French education system in a way is more that it failed me in the sense that I studied first in public school uh, in a really low, like, really low income 
neighborhoods, like very blue collar area, high crime rate uh, neighborhoods in France. And uh, when we moved back, when we moved to Paris, uh, because of my family name and because the way I look, Nobody believed that I'm half Japanese. They all believed that I'm Arabic. So I was immediately, uh, because of the racist uh, education system, I was put into uh, in a like third, fourth tier school. And, uh, and then later in my high school, uh, Ecole Boulle, uh, which is uh, like an arts and crafts focused school, several of my teachers really didn't believe in me at all. Like I was working really hard, but I just Again, because I didn't treat them with a specific respect. I just treat them as humans. They really didn't like that. I'm polite. I'm a very polite person, but I, I ask questions. I don't believe. I will in investigate. And so if they tell me something that doesn't make sense, I have no problem continuing to ask the question until it's satisfactory. And of course, teachers really don't like that. It's not that I don't like authority. I'm fine with authority if it's if authority is, I'd say, is deserved, if it's in the right place. Yeah. But uh, because of this um, tension that I developed with the teachers, they basically told me that they would rather have me not trying to do my baccalaureate because they were afraid that I would get scores so low that I would lower the average of the school. And uh, because of that, when oh. I was 17, I dropped out of high school and I went to study by myself. But because I was so full of rage and resentment for the teachers that did not believe in me, I worked so hard to prove them wrong. And I passed my exam almost as a sort of freelance sort of candidate. And when the result came, nobody believed the result. I had the best result in the history of France in my discipline. Like I, was, I had the best mark in design in the history of France back then, in 2001. And so at the beginning, they thought it was an error because I was supposed to fail. I was not even supposed to apply. And after they verified my grade, they found that, yes, it was correct. I did not cheat. And then suddenly they changed their attitude. The teacher that, that insulted me publicly in front of other students, like literally insulted me. They said that I was going to become a drug addict as a designer, as an artist. They said that I was going to become a criminal, that I, that I had no future. They said this in front of other students. And suddenly they turn around and they're saying like, this is our best student. We're so proud of him. He's the parent of our school. And so this is when I realized there's no way, never, ever in my life, will I let anybody determine the value of who I am in my work. Never. Because when they were proud of me, the only thing that I wanted to do was to punch them in the face, literally, because I felt so betrayed. Mm. And so since then, It's created in my psyche, this, uh, even if people tell me I'm great and whatever, or, if they, or, or the opposite, if they tell me I'm terrible, I'm the worst, I never take the judgment of someone at face value. I, I always reflect like, where does the judgment come from? What is motivated? What is the intention? I have this natural defense, if you will, from deep skepticism on opinion versus facts. So I guess now, if I put this in my context of hierarchy in the university, I do try to tick the box because I have to, but it doesn't mean that I believe in the system. I do have to grade the students and sometimes I give them a bad grade, but it doesn't mean that I don't like them or I don't like the work. I see the grades and I see the, those boxes, that, the stupid box that we have to tick in the administration. It's, it's just the right race in which we are, but, it, but I really make a difference between my judgment and the facts and the grades and the quality of the people. It's, yeah, it's funny you say that because as a teacher as well, my least favorite part of teaching, besides administration, the process of grading people, 
I think unless you can be super clear and transparent about the way that process works and really let people know what the reasons and the rationale and this kind of thing are, then it just becomes this arbitrary thing. And I hate taking something where you have seen somebody's very personal experience. There's quite a level of intimacy with teaching where you have to bear a huge amount of vulnerability to the students and then to you in terms of starting out with a new idea and a new thing and not knowing if it's going to be good or how it's going to be taken. There's a lot of trust involved. And then see that entire process go through and go, yeah, that was a seven or a 6.3 or something like that. It just feels so arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and if you think about this designer or like painter, sculptor, like fine artist, at least we are one step removed from the judgment. But think about like dancers, think about singers, like people judge their face, people judge the shape of their butts, the, the, the shape of the quality of their skin, the color of the skin, whether they look tired. It's like a whole different level of vulnerability. Like they are literally putting themselves out. I have so much respect for dancers. There's so much judgment and people don't realize the courage that is required because what they do, it doesn't have a set market value. If I'm a physical construction worker and I work, let's say, building roofs, there's a market value for a roof. There's a, the cost of hours, etc. It's clear. If you dance, if you dance on a stage, people are going to be like, should I pay 10, 10 euros or 10, or 10 pounds? Or oh, no, this is only worth five pounds. Like it's completely arbitrary. And so your whole life hanged on completely subjective judgments. And so what I found exciting as well about teaching design is that it's so between. You're doing products, for example, that can live both in the world of functionality, but also of emotion. So you see, it's a gray area, which is most fascinating to me. One of the things I found really surprising, I did a project with the opera in Paris and spent a long time working with dancers to do a bit of tech development and stuff, but I was really surprised because I had assumed, and this is completely my ignorance, but I'd assumed that with dancing, there was a huge degree of freedom in terms of what you, what you're able to do. And actually there was the opposite of that in terms of what the dancers were allowed to do. The choreographers had complete power in terms of what happens and the dancers get given a spreadsheet every week, which tells them exactly where they're going to be in 15 minute blocks. You sign up, like you you join that company at age like 15 to 18, something like that. And you're there till I think it's 42. And every single week, you know exactly where you're going to be. <laughs> Everything is yeah. predetermined. And they, the way they move is incredible. The dedication to their craft is amazing. Yes. The, yes. the results that you see in terms of the choreography is phenomenal. But it's a completely different level of a completely different set of judgments than you have as a lay person going to watch something at the opera. Yes. Yes. I have so much admiration for them. And also the fact that they're breaking their bodies, like they're literally breaking their bodies to to please the eye and they have to do it repeatedly for like years on end and people treat them like consumables. Okay. It's so, it's such a cruel uh, industry as well. Yeah. I'm lucky that I never have to display that level of people judging my body, mm-hmm. my <laughs> like anything like that. A lot of it is that I, I'm a white British guy who mm-hmm. has bumbled his way through whatever else and got to whatever stage with a lot of those privileges in mind. And also not going into something where I actually put myself out in that respect. 
but maybe I can ask you a little bit more about teaching. I guess you work with lots of different age groups. Do you have any particular favorite exercise to do with students? Yes, I do. I think my really my favorite is to take them uh, like on field trips. <laughs> I think it's the best because they also yeah. have a great time and they are learning something like firsthand. Like the last field trip, unfortunately, because of COVID, was like it was like six months ago because we had very few COVID cases in Hong Kong, thankfully. And I took my students to volunteer to rebuild a oyster reef, and um, it was really fun. Like the students, it's always contrasted. You have a you have like fifteen or twenty twenty years old people. And some of them are going to be like slackers. You're going to have some of them that are working super hard. And then you're going to see some people are like literally like trying to hide or to not work. And then you're going to have the people like proactively trying to like optimize ways to work more efficiently together. Then you're going to have the cheerleaders like without saying anything, there's so much stuff happening. And it's just so much fun just to see them and their behavior and how they are in the class versus like how they are outside. But the most important is that when it's purposeful, when you go out there to do something useful, like a re environmental restoration project, it's also super motivating. Like you're doing something useful for the environment, you're like working together, physical. Some people are going to get tired, they're going to get cut and bleed. And like there's adventure, there's something there. And that's phenomenal, I think, for in terms of learning. Do you think there's something there as well to do with the lack of the success criteria that are otherwise placed on you? Because if you... You could be a complete slacker on the field trip, but you could do really well in exams or something like that. Or you could be completely opposite. But yeah. it, it seems like what you're saying is you get the, the truth from a person by doing that kind of activity. I think you get the truth of a person like when you do that for a very long time, when you do something hard for a very long time. Uh, Hong Kong students, they, they tend to be very like studio-based and work super long hours in the studio. Um, so I, I don't think I ever get to see my student because in their true nature because I'm not in the studio at 3 a.m. when they're working on the deadline. So I get to see the students when they're they presenting. Sometimes I can tell if they make a good show and they haven't done much work. It's, it's visible sometimes. But I would say most of the time I see that they're working really hard, but they don't have the confidence to, to present their work in a way that reflects of how hard they work and how deserving they are of recognition and praise. I would say the hardest thing and maybe the other thing that is most gratifying for me is the thing that they do when I'm not watching. So for example, like if the students are doing, if they learn something from the course, let's say. I took the example of the oyster reef restoration, for example. And then one year or two years later, after the course, they go volunteer another weekend on their own on restoring the oyster reef. Or they, they respond to a government competition to develop better system to protect the shorelines. Let's say they are landscape architects or engineers. And they stay interested in these topics and they all, all in the approach. And they stay true to the things they've learned and in which they put their hearts. For me, this is like the most beautiful thing that can happen when they push it further than what you taught them. And they take it, they take ownership and they transform what you learn outside of the class, that's the greatest thing, thing for me. Yeah, I guess like a sustainability of practice that you, yep. you're you able to help them find the thing that they carry on doing. And that they're passionate about themselves. Yeah. yeah. Is, is there anything that you do to warm up to some sort of creative practice? For example, I, I quite often find myself if I'm at a complete block and I think I go over the same problem again and again, just going for a walk mm -hmm. or just doing some free writing or anything like that. Really, I don't know what it is about those things, but they really get me going. Is there anything like that that you have that gets you fired up and excited or are you just always on? Yeah. 
I wish. <laughs> no, I'm human too. I would say that for me, the, the because I'm all about like environmental stuff, spending time in nature is the thing for me. But I'm trying to do that with the students as well. Maybe it's not very healthy emotionally, but a lot of my energy comes from the suffering, the, from the pain of, of seeing the environment being destroyed. So sometimes if I don't feel I have the energy anymore to do something for, let's say, plastic pollution, take a walk on a beach, you're going to see plastic. That's going to give you the energy again to get mm. back to where because the problem is still there. Mm. If you're working on the social, on social issues, again, you take a walk and you're going to see homeless people. And, and then you might stop and buy a drink or buy a snack and just sit down in the street. And from the corner of my eyes, you're just looking at them and just trying to see like the humanity. Like, are, they happy? Are, they, are they sad? Are they interacting with each other? Do I feel the trust in how they interact with each other? Do I feel the same stress that is happening because there's a war in another country happening or because you basically connect with other humans or connect with nature? And I think if you do any sort of purpose-driven work, this is how you recharge your purpose. Yeah. Uh, for me, that's how I, I get charged or get inspired. How do you develop ideas with other people? And where do you get feedback on things that you're working on? So the idea with the other people, actually, what I was describing first as a field trip, for me, is my primary way. I try, if I can, I don't want to give any sort of answers. I try to let the people being confronted with the problem, so they fall in love with the problem, and so that they bring new ideas to the table. I guess like transforming that compassion into creative empathy. Also because I was trained in design thinking, it's a method that I codified. But then working with people is it's a very easy to do because I truly see the value in other people's creativity and the input, whether because they bring new ideas or because they criticize the ideas and negative destructive or constructive critique. I found all this nourishing. And because I think I've become pretty resilient uh, as a designer as well, like I am pretty much like ready to take on any, I feel ready to take on any sort of like hostile, like I feel totally uh, okay in a very hostile environment uh, as designer. Uh, whether mm-hmm. I'm working in a radioactive environment, I'm actually like in a dangerous place like Fukushima area, radioactivity, or I go to work like in the inner city where people actually have weapons. I am, not that I'm looking for those kind of, of environments, but uh, I grew up in a lot of this sort of hostile environment. As a designer, I feel like it really gives me a special sort of ability to sort of infiltrate uh, those different places and be very comfortable in those different environments. Uh, recently, I was doing a project for like refugee, for example, in the in Cox Bazaar. So that was a master of architecture studio that I was running. And because I had some less experience myself, then the kind of stuff that they're telling me about that uh, that we went into discussing with the Bangladeshi refugee or the Rohingya, Rohingya refugees, like talking about like, where do you go to shit? As a design, mm. if you never had this endless experience, like you don't even know that's a problem. But if you had this experience yourself, uh, then you don't have a problem talking about it. There's no shame. And if you don't have shame, then the way you talk to people without shame, you make them feel comfortable, they talk to you more. So like, it's vital, in my opinion, that designers have a lot of life experience so that they can be human, so that they can relate to other humans who are living this big diversity of human experience as well. Being rich, being poor, being isolated, being betrayed, having your house being burned or being injured, like whatever, like being sick, like all this stuff, if you have lived it, I think makes you a better designer and able to collaborate with other people better. You're basically, I feel, just more human. 
I couldn't agree with that more. And I think one of the failures that um, a lot of academic systems have is that the types of people who end up applying to architecture schools or to design schools or things where the outcome is quite abstract or requires a huge amount of money to invest in. I'm, I'm thinking of, I used to teach in America and students have to pay a crazy amount of money just to go to the university. Yes. So of course yes. it just puts up barriers to people who might have really interesting stuff to say or to produce or anything else. And it's just such a shame the design doesn't always invite in a more inclusive way, people who have a wider range of experiences. And that's not to say that if you don't have a really interesting or troubled background in some sort of a way, you shouldn't be doing design, but yeah. exactly what you said about having life experience makes you more human. For example, like in university, I'm not going to give specific name, but they are not allowed to give the students free material for their models. So it means that if you're given a brief and you're from a rich family and let's say your model calls for like inserting a laser projector inside of it, then you can do it, right? Because you have the money to buy it. And I've been trying so hard to explain uh, in the department that it is not all the students come with money. So uh, you have to create a playing level field where you can enable the students that don't have money to be enabled somehow either through lending them equipment or creating resources for them. But the response I've had so far is that it's just not our culture because they come from elitist school, because they come from a yeah. place where they have money. And because the only way that I could be where I am today is because I was in a public French school and I, was, and I had scholarship. If I didn't have scholarship, there's no way I could be where I am today. So I have a lot of empathy that with the students that don't have the means to get there. And I'm really working my ass off to try to bring those resources in the hands of the students so there's a level playing field. Otherwise, university is just another instrument of society to amplify inequality. Yeah. And I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be part of a, a mechanism that just makes the rich richer and the, and the poor poorer. I believe that education should be the exact opposite. It should be about merit. But because the leadership at my university is coming from an elitist background, they don't even understand the relevance of that. They just like, they can't afford it, they have to be more resourceful. It goes back to the American dream that if you work hard enough, you're going to get it. They don't understand that, yes, but there are lots of opportunities where we can still make it so that we need to give opportunities. That's our job as teacher, like is to give people who have potential, is to develop this potential. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's been a struggle. But for example, as a student, you know that I was living in a van when I was doing my master in the UK. So I was really poor. I couldn't pay for the, the train. So I was a bicycle and I cycle from my van every day to school. And for me, I was proud that I would be taking the material from the rubbish bin from the rich kid and I would be making a project better than the rich kid with their waste. And mm. for me, it would be like the ultimate like middle finger to, to show that I don't need to be rich. I'm going to be so good that with what you throw in the garbage, I'm going to make something better than you. And for me, I made a point to make that happen. Like, there's a lot of resentment in, in the way that I practice, but for me, it's part of the practice. Like how do you level the playing field and give opportunity to people who don't? That's fundamental for me. Yeah, I think that's very clear <laughs> the way you describe it. It's very easy in elitist situations. And I don't want to say this in terms of like blaming anybody in any schools or anything like that, but uh -huh. it's very easy when you see elitist education that perpetuates these ideas of 
financial means equating to merit. If you have the financial resources to build, like to 3D print a massive model, then you must be a good mm -hmm. student. And that's completely the opposite to what it actually is. Exactly. Actually, yeah, skip diving and finding old materials and reducing waste and this kind of stuff can yield different results. If you have a completely blank canvas and you have a completely just a huge budget to make stuff, you don't always make the most interesting stuff. The most interesting projects come from being situated in some sort of place in a specific location with a specific context. There's just about no huge band who's made their best album once they got rich. <laughs> it's all that stuff that you were doing, recording on a borrowed four track and this kind of thing that um, That's right. is where the soul comes with it. Yeah. And so as a designer, in, in a way, it can be very healthy to be on a restricted budget. Personally, now that I'm working in Hong Kong, it's a very rich city. And, but I'm interested to do an environmental impact. And so that means that I need to develop designs and technology that can scale. And so if I do something that's going to satisfy my boss, which is typically going to be something using very high technology, it means that if it breaks in the field, there's no way they're going to repair it. And so that means that the stuff that I'm going to develop here eventually is completely irrelevant to what I'm actually trying to do. In a way, I have to get out of the university to do something that is relevant for society and then bring it back to university to learn something and to teach something useful for the students. So it's like the in and out, going in and out of academia for me is vital to stay relevant as well. And so that's how I'm trying to integrate research and teaching also for that very reason of the utility, the relevance of the work. Because in academia, it's, like it's a bubble. So I need to make sure that I don't teach my students how to survive in the bubble, but outside of it, ideally. Is there anybody you discuss all your teaching ideas with, or do they just evolve on their own with the students? The reason I'm asking is because you have such a wide background of educational institutions that you've seen, like from <laughs> the ones that completely rejected and then loved you at the beginning, through to <laughs> places like the RCA, which really lent into the things that you were interested in and let you evolve, but also did kick back against you like quite a bit. I'm a very creative person. And so it's so whoever's the closest to me at that moment. <laughs> so I guess it's going to be like, uh, oftentimes it's my wife that I'm discussing those, like those ideas in mm. those last few years. I will be discussing with, with a bunch of friends. Some of them are academics. Some of them work in the industry or in, in NGOs or something like this. The people I, I think I enjoy talking to the most are the people that I, maybe I don't know so well. And so that I get to know through discussing those ideas. <laughs> Because they may be in a related industry uh, mm. or they may be like uh, they're the beneficiaries. So let's say, for example, if I have this idea of designing something for the homeless, if I have a brief about homelessness, then I want to talk to a homeless person. I don't want to talk about homelessness architecture for home, or like homeless people to another architect because they don't know. Or I don't want to talk about designing something for animals, for example, like designing the enclosure for zoos, in zoos, for example. Then my, I would try to go in the field to think about this topic. So I would go into a zoo and think about like, how can I improve the living condition of animals in those enclosures. I'm trying to, I'm usually trying to get close to the subject. And yeah, I also spend a lot of time listening to my students, taking their feedback, but also not like relying 100% on what they're asking me. I'm also looking at the actual produce quality. And more recently, I'm spending more time looking at data as well, looking at 
for example, if we're using a wiki, yeah, look at statistics, like who is engaging with the course, how many hours do they spend, and the hours spent versus the quality of the work, or the proportion of hours do they spend in tutorials versus the hours that spend in the workshop or in the field, or how much time I allocate for presentation preparation versus development of the work. It's a machine with many buttons and many uh, knobs. And then the students are changing all the time as well. So it's a constantly evolving animal. And myself, because I'm a researcher at heart, like there's not one way that I'm going to settle. I'm always like optimizing and uh, experimenting. I don't get bored. And I always try new things as a teacher. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I'm, and I'm constantly trying to learn and reflect. I enjoyed, like in the last three years, I've been repeating for the first time the same course. I've been repeating this architecture studio, floating marine laboratory. And every year I've been running it differently and I feel like I've grown a lot from repetition as well. At the beginning, it was worrying me that I was going to repeat the same course, but I found that every year is super, super, super different. Uh, recently, I wrote a more than 100-page report about it and reflection of how the course was structured and how it changed over time and the quality of the output and replicability. And it's been super interesting. So repetition is also good. I can see that a lot of the courses that I do are about trying to find creative unlocking in some sort of a way creating a set of constraints that people have to work with then or react to. I've really enjoyed running some of those courses for several years. In the past, I used to develop a new course every year and try to throw in a bunch of new ideas. And it's just lovely sometimes seeing something that looked one shape last year and is exactly the same this year, but the students do something completely different with it. Yeah. There's just something satisfying and being able to take that helicopter perspective and just see the difference between things. I also see it a bit like a relationship. So when you do a new course every year, it's like dating. And so it can mm. be exciting because it's new, but at the same time, you don't really get to know the person very necessarily very deep. It's like you're dating. But then doing a course repeatedly changes you as well. And it's like getting married. So it's the same topic, but instead of having a lot of different partners, you are now having many different types of interactions with that same partner. And so you start to learn your topic in many new different angles and becoming better at it and discovering the complexity of that person and the complexity of your topic so much better. Having, I think having a mix of class that you repeat and, and a couple of class where you experiment, I think it is a healthy balance. And then doing research, of course. So at the same time as I was, at the beginning, I was saying that I feel overwhelmed by all these different aspects. I do recognize the value of having those diverse relationships to knowledge and to, to people inside university, outside of university, in research, in writing, in publishing, as well as in teaching. So I, I do see the value of it. It's just, yeah, it is overwhelming. And there's no end to it. It's not, you do a job and you do it very well. Like, let's say you're making great shoes. It's a clear outcome. You're making a bunch of, you could always make better shoes. So it's also endless, but it still seems that it is like an object at the end, quantifiable. With teaching, it's it's a sort of gray area on a lot of those different disciplines. So it's, yeah, it's, it's hard. Yeah. I guess the best outcome you can have is that you maintain contact with students enough that you hear that they're doing really well. And the thing that you help them to do is the thing that they now are doing, living and loving. Yeah. But it's also hard to maintain contact with that many students once they pass through because they're at a very specific stage of their life when they're your student quite often, like being doing a master's, doing an undergraduate degree, doing whatever else. And they also move on with their lives and go off and get married and end up not being in the studio till 3 a.m. every day and this kind of thing. 
I wanted to ask a little bit about the way that you manage your time. In the beginning, you said, my name is Cesar Harada and I do. And then you listed about 20 different things. I know that you are incredibly busy and I know that you have a huge amount of energy. I remember when we were working together on the open sailing project, you would be the last person to go to sleep at about two in the morning. And then you'd be the first, I'd wake up and you'd still be typing. And I'd just be thinking, how do you manage to, to stay awake for so long and also stay switched on and having new ideas and all this kind of stuff. But I also saw in the planning of this interview, you sent me a screenshot of your calendar and it's oh. rammed full of things. There's so much stuff in there, but I wonder how you go about scheduling your time and give things priority and give enough space to be a partner and a dad and all of the other roles that you have to fulfill whilst also running a startup, being a lecturer, doing all the other things that you do? I think at the end of the day, it's about the people you surround yourself with. I do think that I'm very privileged that I that, that I've been able to be part of great teams. So that even if I'm participating a lot of different activities, whether it's teaching, there's, there's a whole admin team that looks after the building. But for example, like when I was doing certain type of thing, for example, running Mecca Bay, the Mecca space, in the very first year, it was all consuming. I was able only to do that because it was like just that job was like many jobs at the same time, and maintaining the building and the machines and getting the materials, like managing the orders and getting the clients and doing research for the next project. That was so consuming. But then over time, the team at Mechabay grew with the revenue, and now I'm able to be at Mechabay and so still run Mechabay Limited, but I also built a foundation, and there's like a whole board of directors that runs the foundation now. Uh, we have a whole team and managed to, to raise like almost like a million dollar grant, so they, they have a job for the next three years. And so even if I'm, even if I suck, they will still have a job, and even if I get hit by a truck, they will still have a job. So I feel like it's about getting a lot of those like systems uh, and then like maintaining the systems so that you know, people are happy and that you don't become a bottleneck for any of the processes that you set up in place. And also a lot about trusting. I feel like I've learned so much more about being a manager. I've always hated to be a manager, honestly. I hate to control people. I really want to trust people and let them do the things. But I also learned what all, this, all the wrong things that can happen when you give too much trust <laughs> to the wrong people or they are or not the wrong people. You know, it was just not the right time for them or something. Yeah, so I would say team, trust. Then I would say it's also quality expectation. Somehow like lowering, <laughs> not lowering, but like accepting some compromising or accepting mm. that what you want to have delivered is more a function of what the client wants than rather that your own too high standard. <laughs> like, I don't know for you, but right. for me, like, a designer, the thing we tend to be like perfectionist, like want to have a certain thing. But when you start to become more like a business person or like a management person, then you have to let go of being like a super anal designer because these two things are not compatible. You can be super anal and super demanding as a designer, but in terms of business practice, then you have to let go of a lot of stuff. And also for me, it's just accepting the loss and also managing risk. So in, in the past, I think I used to take like everything in, take too high risk. And now I've learned to, to have a bit of treasury and I've learned to take measured risk also because I'm a father. So I also do not want to compromise my health and my family. So I do think that the Caesar that you knew 10 years ago is, even though the energy is definitely still there, but the level of risk that I'll be taking is now super, super different. And yeah, 
much more contained, if you will. I try to, to contain the risk. Yeah, I completely empathize with that point because I think the, the Ollie that you knew 10 years ago is probably <laughs> a different one to the one that you see today. Yeah. In that having a family, having more responsibility, also having financial responsibilities for teams changes a lot. Yeah. Yeah, um, totally. Again, I empathize with you about the idea of running a team. My natural inclination is to try to find the things that people are good at and trust them to do those things. But quite often, mm -hmm. management requires checking on those things and having conversations mm -hmm. about what did or didn't go right or this kind of stuff. And it's, mm -hmm. it's really hard to do that without assuming a position of moral superiority. <laughs> and I don't want to be that person, but I don't think I can do stuff yeah. better necessarily <laughs> a lot of the time. Ideally, you work with people who do stuff better than you, right? Like that's the, that's what yeah. you want. You want to work with people where you're like, oh, wow, like you're blown away. But then you don't want to show too much that you're blown away because then they're going to be like, oh, he's got a really low stand. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's kind of a it's kind of a balance so that, that, they, mm. that, they, uh, that they value your, your feedback and strictly you on. But um, I feel now I'm in a phase where I want to spend less time managing people. So actually I'm in a phase where I want to do a little less of like big team work. And I want to be a bit working on myself for the next three years because I'm also writing a PhD right now. And so the people I'll be collaborating with, I think I want to keep them out of my circle of management. Like I want to, I don't want to have to manage too many people in the next three years, hopefully. But once I like hopefully get like full tenure and that I have a really good technology and a really good design and it's time to scale it, I think this is when I'm going to go back into like full like management uh, style. But now I want to be more like in science and engineering and design and research. Uh, but uh, yeah, I want to take like a small break because in the last 10 years, I've been spending so much time like managing people and it's not what I enjoyed the most. I like collaborating, but I don't like managing. I don't have to, I don't want to be responsible for everything all the time. Yeah. I think that's a really nice way to put it. I'm looking for the way to, to do management that is collaborative. I think that's always the goal when I'm working with other people, but as I say, it's, I think also with coming from a design context, quite often you end up working with people in collaborative ways that don't imply a power structure so much because you're working on sort of like a group project. There's very rarely training in management that comes in design programs and in art programs and this kind of thing. Yeah. And so much right. of what those practices involve is really like managing relationships with people, like being a really good yes person, a good friend and all this kind of stuff, but also finding ways of non-combatatively giving feedback. So not saying, oh, your idea is absolutely terrible, but trying to find ways of being where improvements could be made. And the way that a lot of design education is set up doesn't enable that to happen in the first place. Print systems are awful for uh, they make you super tough, but you also you're the best people at crits as not necessarily the best people in the world. Yeah. It's something that I think doesn't come naturally within the discipline. It is toughening for sure. I do see the utility of this in a professional world. Like you said, when you're going to have to pitch something to clients, they, they're not always receptive and nice and love your idea. I think schools are, are like architectural school, design school that use the crits as a mechanism for teaching, uh, produce a certain type of designer. That mechanism produces a certain type of designer or architect or I, like what, like what you said, like it's not necessarily reflective of the quality, but what I feel is that yeah, there are different design schools and they use different crit styles. So I feel that as educator as well, it's also our job to choose which institution we want to take part in. 
and as collaborators also to influence that process. I'm actually, uh, we just got a grant in the University of Hong Kong with my, some of my collaborators to actually make a study of alternative to crit culture to change that in the university. The reason is because uh, there's actually like a high rate of suicide or depression with students. And we recognize that's like a serious issue. This is no longer just a disciplinary, how, you know, it's like, it's, a, it's not very constructive. I don't feel good. No, it's becoming clinical. It's becoming like a pathological. So we have to do something about it. So I'm excited about that research because I could see that that could be a platform for testing a lot of other stuff. As any experiment, a lot of things can go wrong as well. So I'm also a little bit worried that we may do something that may be potentially even more harmful than crit, trying to resolve the crit problem. I'm being very honest. Yeah. Because we always think that we're going to do something better, but there's unintended consequences everywhere. And it's also a logistic thing. Like I think it's useful for the student to get feedback from different professionals. Personally, mm. recently I've been bringing in people who are not designers to my crits because I feel that they bring a lot of common sense and that's oftentimes so much more valuable than, oh, I'm a designer. Because I feel that the judgment that we put on their work is the eyes of a designer, but the consumers yeah. are not designers. So the sort of constraint that we create by making a brief is one, but why does it also have to be on the output? The output should be judged by society, not by the designers. So bring people from society to, to actually judge the work. And I feel that would be more fair. Otherwise, we create this sort of sterile environment where they are like disconnected. It's like hydroponic. There's no taste or I don't know how to, to, to metaphorize it, but I think you get the idea. Yeah, and I can completely see that. The course I teach on is called Situated Design. And part of the idea of situating is the, this hierarchy that exists between designers and the rest of the world that designers no longer just sit in their studio and churn out things in generic fonts and get super obsessed with kerning and all this kind of stuff, but actually engage with the world and go out and talk to people and find things and work with others. But yeah, I think involving other people in the process can only ever make it richer. And I think that one of the natural inclinations that designers have is to say, oh yeah, but that also makes it more complicated. But because designers are always after simplification. Messy. But, yeah. But messiness is something that can really find its way into processes. I'm not saying everybody should just go and throw more and more ingredients into it, but that if there's real engagement with the world, with people, with other practices and disciplines, then there's a richness that comes that is greater than the ability to make something perfectly square with the same radius corners or whatever else that you obsess with in design. Again, it's producing the different designers. Like I feel that some designers are going to be more working in the industry as executioners of ideas or responding to market demand. You're going to have another type of designer that's going to be like creating new desires and creating things that the society doesn't think they need. Or it's going to work with like extreme users and exploring places that have never been explored before. So I think like all these practice, in my opinion, they are fine. It's just that hopefully the students that have applied to a school understood what they were getting into and they are happy to be part of this methodology. But I feel that a lot of the times the student first, the, this information is not clearly available or it's sometimes misleading. Or we use like buzzword, like interdisciplinarity and future thinking and uh, new technology or whatever. But it doesn't tell about the substance. It just tells like the objects. But there was one school of industrial design called the INSCI, Atelier Saint-Sabin. So it's an industrial design school in, in France. And they, they used to select the student not on the quality of their portfolio, but on their potential. And 
they evaluate the students by observing them working in a team. So for example, you, instead of having a, the typical exam, then it's about like teamwork and building stuff with Legos and going outside and then interacting with people. And this is how they build, they're trying to judge of character of the potential of somebody instead of their achievements. And I thought that was fascinating. And the whole school was articulated around this new way of thinking about society. And that was a fascinating school to, to be in exchange there because I could feel like everything was different because of these sort of different philosophical choices that they've made. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I was waiting for you to say, but... Because, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it sounds really, yeah, looking for the best in people. And I think that fundamentally design is an optimistic discipline. I hope that most people who go into design or into sort of creative practice in whatever way do it because they want to create something that makes the world a better place. And I think if you can start with trying to make better designers and see the potential in people, you've got far greater chances of making the world a better place. But the truth is that most people don't really care about design, except something is like really horrid and breaks down. Yep. Um, like most buildings are not designed by architects. Most designs are just the result of like industrial designer optimizing for injection molding, except yeah. if you live in a very advanced economy. But I'm talking about the vast majority of the human beings on the planet, not like the 1% or the 10%. Recently, there was one designer that told me that people don't really care when they don't have a choice when they start to have a choice then they start to see the differences and just by comparing so if you ask somebody what they think about an object they don't have much to say but if you show them two objects and you ask them which one they prefer they would have so many things to say because they can compare so i think this question of design for us emerges because we have options because we have the socioeconomics and the environment in which we, we live but the design that I'm, i feel i'm most excited about is the design that transforms the situation so it's for people who use that design to transform their condition or transform the environment. And so it's more like a functional piece of design, if you will. It's got a social environmental function to it. So I don't see myself as a designer is going to design a lot of like tables and chairs and nice shirts and stuff like this. I don't have a strong yeah. affinity with this, actually. I think this is probably a nice place to reach sure. conclusion to the conversation because we've talked about just about everything I've wanted to, to talk about. But yeah, it's also come back to how to make the field better, how to make people's lives better and how to be more equitable in the way we recruit designers. So do you have any advice for people who want to do the kinds of things that you do today or people who are just starting out to teach or starting out in design? I mean, this is not my idea, but you probably heard about Simon Sinek and his idea of like infinite game versus limited game, finite game versus infinite game. Are you familiar with the concept? I don't know this now. Okay. So basically, there's an idea. Uh, maybe I'm going to describe it wrong. Maybe this is my interpretation of it. But there's like a finite game. So for example, let's say that you want to be uh, the best designers of buttons. You want to design the best buttons in the world. And so you're sort of like on a treadmill to be number one. But the designing buttons and being number one, uh, it's, it's like you benchmark your success uh, against other people. But let's say what you're really interested in is not buttons, but what you're interested in is to give a sense of safety for people. And so it, then it's not a button necessarily that you're going to be designing. You're going to maybe design a bunch of buttons, but maybe you're going to work on with zippers, clips, pressures, different type of stitch and folds. And, and then what you care about is like, how do you protect the human body? But then it can become like more technical. It can be more about the emotions, about the cultural integration. 
So it's like you start to have a game that is much broader because it's not about a particular item or particular status. It's not like something you can quantify. It's something bigger. And so what I would suggest to people is that if they get into design, is that it's okay in the early stage to set yourself some very specific goals so that it can stimulate your growth. But eventually, I believe that the work of a designer, personally, I believe that is deeply political. And so if you want to grow to the maximum that, uh, that the designer can be, then you need to sort of have a philosophical or a political or an ethical direction overall. I'm not saying which direction it should be, but what I'm saying is that eventually you're going to, it's a bit like mathematicians, for example, or physicists. Like eventually you start to see patterns of mathematics or physics in, like, in the world around you. And I think the same happens when you're a designer, especially when you're a designer, like you start to see like everything becomes design in your opinion. The same like a lot of mathematicians would tell like the whole universe is mathematics or the whole world is physics. And I think that, well, personally, that's my view. If you want to excel in the, in the field of design, is to accept that eventually your worldview is going to be transformed by the expertise that you will have developed. Yet, it is, it's vital that you do not construe your perception of the world as being the world. So for example, like some mathematicians become absolutely assholes, unbearable to be around with because they, they would think that everything is mathematics and be like, there's not only that way to read the world. And, and to keep that sort of open-mindedness. So to have your own ability to see the world in your own very own way, but also being open-minded enough to be curious and, and accepting and interested in acquiring those different perspectives. And I think that's that in that way, you can engage fully with the discipline that is a true discipline, but at the same time, really being open-minded and continue to learn and grow as a human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that would be my advice, is to, to love your discipline, but like really stay curious, basically, and appreciative of like other people's perspective, mm -hmm. especially your students. Uh, especially if you're a teacher, it's so easy to uh, feel that you're reinforced by your practice. And it should be the opposite. It should be the opposite. It means that every time you meet a student, they should poke holes into your theory because the world changes. And so if your theory stays the same or your technique stays the same, you are failing to adapt. You are missing. You are fundamentally missing something. That is such lovely advice. I agree with it completely. And I don't think I could have summarized it in a better way. Anyway, thank <laughs> you so much. That was such a lovely way to finish. I think it's such a nice piece of advice that you can literally take with you every day whenever you're thinking about whatever you're doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold the Space. If any of the things we've discussed are of interest, please do take a look through the links in the show notes and its website at www.holdthespace.art. I've tried to link to as many of the projects and people as possible. Of course, I probably have missed a couple. Many thanks to my guest for generously donating time to this episode. As you know, this is quite a new podcast, and I'm still working out the best way to make the format work. If you have any comments or suggestions, please do send me a note. I'd love to hear feedback on this. There are details in the show notes and on the show website, again at www.holdthespace.art. This podcast is made possible by the Situated Art and Design Research Group at Karat, the Centre for Applied Research in Art, Design and Technology. Each episode is recorded, edited and mixed by me, Ollie Palmer. 
For more information, including full transcripts for each episode, links to relevant work or resources, please visit the podcast website at www.holdthespace.art or click the link in the podcast notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back with you again soon.